Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito, principal of Groundworks, Inc. My co-host, Alice Marcus-Krieg, is home with her newborn baby today. Hey, Alice. Hey. (laughs) Um, Alice and I and our gardening team design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. And We Dig Plants aims to bring the culture to horticulture. So last November, I had the privilege of meeting today's guest, Mark Smallwood, who is the executive director of the Rodale Institute in person on a private tour of their farm and facilities in Cutstown, Pennsylvania. Mark went on to be our guest on our show later that month, and we realized we had so much to talk about and so much that we didn't cover. We're having him back on the show today. Mark's professional experience has been dedicated to environmental sustainability and organic farming. Prior to his position at Rodale, he served as the Mid-Atlantic Green Mission Specialist and local forager at Whole Foods, where he was the 2010 National Award winner for Best Whole Foods Market Spokesperson. Mark's career has also included the following roles, founder of an organic lawn care company, messenger for Al Gore's climate project, school teacher and basketball coach, and last but certainly not least, as a longtime organic farmer and biodynamic gardener. Mark has raised chickens, goats, sheep, pigs, and also driven a team of oxen. Mark, I'm so glad you could join us today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We are having such great weather. I know! So it's just uh, the adrenaline is flowing here at the Rodale Institute. Everybody's just hopping around the place today. I know. We had really, uh, time will tell what kind of spring and summer we'll have, but we certainly haven't had much of a winter. So we're, Alice and I are both rearing to go. Our clients are calling us. They're ready to have their gardens worked on. It's, it's pretty amazing this year. Yes, you know, we had uh, last fall planted 25,000 tulips. And so they're all up about six inches now, and we're really watching and anticipating when that, that, that bloom hits, it's going to be spectacular. Yeah, that's one of the things that we wanted to talk about. Um, I mean, nothing's more synonymous with spring than tulips, in my mind. And the U.S. imports uh, close to 800 million tulip bulbs a year. But like so many conventionally grown crops and, and you know, cut flowers and bulbs are crops, they're heavily sprayed with chemicals. So you've started a partnership um, with, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to mispronounce the name, but Joanne and Carrie Ann Komen, is that right? Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, their company is called Eco Tulips. Right. They're helping to sort of build an organic tulip market in the U.S. Is that right? Yes, and they are the only organic tulip growers in the United States right now. So that's why we were very happy to be able to have met them. I met them last spring at the Organic Trade Association conference. Okay. Of course, we invited them out here, and they grow. They're, they're actually out of Virginia. They grow forty thousand tulips on a quarter acre. Okay. 
So uh, we purchased 25,000 from them. And, you know, because it's so dependent upon the weather, we aren't even really able to set a date for the, for the uh, Tulip Festival that we have planned. Uh, we're sort of targeting um, April 21st, and, but it's, it's purely a guess because it's all dependent upon how this, the weather takes us. Well, they're already six inches up, so you're, you're probably ahead of the game, I bet, than you expected when yeah, you put them I, in I the ground. I think so, and, and um, down in Virginia, they're probably two weeks ahead of us is what they're guessing. Yeah. It's kind of like the Cherry Blossom Festival at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden every year. You know, they, set, they have to set a date because they have to do so much publicity and so much work ahead of time, and then the blossoms are either on the trees or on the ground you know yeah, yeah it's it we really are taking a guess what you can do though is if you go to the rodale institute website so that's www.rodaleinstitute.org you can get on our bloom alert okay. list and when we have a much better feel for the day we're going to send out an e-blast to everybody on that list okay and it will say something to the effect that yes the festival will be this saturday for example so tell me a little bit more about the festival um what what can people expect will they be able to buy cut tulips are they going to uh, give give us some more details about it sure we will have some cut and wrapped already in our store uh, but we're encouraging uh, cut your own, actually. It's a dollar a stem, so it's very reasonable. That is very reasonable. I mean, that's how much a, that's how much a conventional tulip costs in a market. That's right. <clears throat> and uh, uh, what, what, what we've also done is we've uh, attached a research project to the tulip growing. So we have some beds that have uh, nothing except the uh, virgin soil. And then we've top dressed with a quarter inch of compost. The next bed has a half of inch of compost. And then the next bed has um, about three quarters of an inch of compost. And so we're, we're going to be looking at, once, once we harvest all of the um, tulips, we're going to be looking at the uh, soil biology. But we're also going to be identifying shelf life and what eco-tulips does with their petals is they actually make... Uh, quite a bit of sales to restaurants in the Washington, D.C. area. Really? As, ed- as edible. <laughs> now, I never thought of tulip petals as edible. I mean, I know there's a lot of other edible flowers, but that's very interesting because then you're using, you know, more parts of the of the crop. Sure. So we, we yeah. are actually going to be making up um, quite a few large salads, and we're going to put tulip petals in them and mm. do some tasting. Uh, during the festival. Well, that's great. I wish I could come, but I unfortunately am in the thick of my gardening season. Um, so this is a question that I'm sure, you know, has occurred to you all. You know, people care about what they eat. You know, the, the organics, the business has grown exponentially over the past 10 years. Do you think, Mark, it's hard to convince people to care about organics if it's not about food, if it's just about, quote unquote, ornamental? What do you think about that? Well, of course, you know, we don't stray from organic. So right. we talk about um, not just ornamentals, but as you said at the beginning of the show, I started my own organic lawn care business. Right. And we, we think that there's a, a, a big interest, especially in turf. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we want to take it beyond even residential. So, for example, uh, we are in 
in the process of putting together a proposal for the Pittsburgh Pirates. They okay. want to talk, they've, they've, we've already spoken to them about converting the Pittsburgh Pirate uh, baseball team's field to organic. Okay. And I think that what happens is when you do something like that, whether it's the ornamentals or the turf, be it residential or otherwise, uh, it really clues people into um, the, the food piece. There's a great connection. So we think that through things like turf, we can begin then to affect training tables of athletes. We think that we can begin to affect the concession stands in these professional uh, venues so that the idea would be that I, I could go to the ball field, uh, the athletes would be playing on fields that have no chemical residues on them of any kind, their training tables would be organic, and I could go to the concession stand and get an organic hot dog and an, or, and an organic glass of beer. Right, right. And of course, you know, if it's if if their pristine, if their fields can be cared for organically, then that'll trickle down in so many levels on the residential and commercial side. You know, who yeah, are- and that's usually exactly how it happens. It it is trickle down. So people will look at that. You know how they maintain the the ball fields at the professional level. They're they're just oh, perfect. Yeah, they're pristine. Exactly. And we know that we can do that organically. And once we begin to highlight that and, and present that, it is trickle down. I want, it, I want my, field, I want my uh, front yard to have those stripes on them, just like the Pittsburgh Pirates. Right. Right. It's an excellent. And, and, I, and I love how you're going local to, you know, from Rodale and then radiating out into so many different areas. So one of the things that I found really interesting that I recently read about that you're all doing is the, the honeybee conservancy program. Um, sure. Tell us about that and how, how that partnership came about with, um, I think it was the Baltimore honey company. Yes, it's, it's uh, baltimorehoney.org. So, okay. uh, so it's three years ago now when I was still working with whole foods, uh, I met Mimi Thomas. She is the queen bee actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, she started BaltimoreHoney.org, and the, the premise was for it to be a CSA, Community Supported Apiary. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so she came to me. Um, she, she actually was a neighbor of mine in Baltimore. And okay. she asked if maybe I could speak with Whole Foods about some sponsorship. And, of course, Whole Foods did help her. Uh, they, they funded the initial startup. And our goal was to put at least one hive in all 27 zip codes of Baltimore City. Hmm. So we did that year one, and now three years later, she has 66 hives in Baltimore City. That's great. I mean, New York City just recently allowed hives to be put legally. I mean, there were many, quote unquote, illegal hives all over the rooftops and backyards. But it's really gratifying to, to hear that other cities are doing it, too. Yeah, it is, it is truly a hot topic, and I, I think it would probably be best for, for listeners to hear some of the history of, of what's gone on. So uh, back in the 70s, there were over 7 million beekeepers in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's, there's now less than 2 million. Mm-hmm. If you kind of use New York City as the way to compare that, you know, because the numbers are similar. What, yeah. if, what if the population in New York City would drop to 2 million? What would it look like? Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what's going on yeah. with beekeeping across the United States. So the bees 
really need the beekeeper. There are very few wild hives left because of all of the development that's gone on. And their immune systems have been highly jeopardized, and so they have problems with the varroa mite, the tracheal mite, uh, American fowl brood, and um, European fowl brood. Those are sort of the pests and diseases that the, the honeybee is up against at this point. And then, of course, four years ago, so n normally uh, if I had 100 hives, I would come out in the spring and, and open my hives up and, and look at the health of the bees and, you know, which ones didn't make it, for example. And so up to, you know, 30, 40, 50, up to 90% for years, 30 years, up to 90% of the hives would be completely dead. So if there were 60,000 bees in the hive, you open it up in the spring and you would find 60,000 dead bees. Mm -hmm. And you would have to rehive that new queen and a nucleus of, uh, oh, usually it's about 12,000 bees to start a new population. And that's, that's typical. That was typical for a, a beekeeper. Yes. Okay. That's typical across the country. Okay. Four years ago, you come out and you open up your hive and there's not 60,000 dead bees. There's no bees. They just disappeared. And the same thing, you know, 30, 40, 50% of the hives were, were just empty. Is and that what is that what they were what they calling uh, colony collapse? Okay, before. that's what everybody's been reading about, and and I think there was a PBS special about that, and yes. numerous books, I think, and I think people are starting to realize how much our agriculture and our food depends on this small insect. Yes, right. I did. A, I did a documentary. Um, two years ago, actually at one of the Whole Foods stores in Virginia, mm -hmm. and we walked the aisles and just sort of pointed out all of the different food products, including processed foods. You just look at the ingredients oh, on yeah. the side of the box. Um, the, the highly dependent upon the pollination of the bee. So even, with, even now, four years later, colony collapse disorder, there is no definitive answer. There's all kinds of research going on. Penn State happens to be leading some of it, and mm -hmm. that's why we're so aware of it. Mm -hmm. But nobody has an answer. And so everybody's still scratching their head, and is it, you know, is it uh, cell phone towers, or is it pesticides? And right. nobody, nobody will say what it is yet there is just no answer and the honeybee is actually a european introduction right it's not a native american bee at all that's correct there's some russian bees but most of the bees uh, the honeybees in particular uh here in the united states are european italian mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. right because they're the calmer ones right <laughs> That's they're, right. they're easier to manage. Yep. So, uh, so with this with this conservancy, are you trying to encourage more people to set up hives on their properties and in their rooftops? Yes, we we think that the answer to the health of the honeybee is not the commercial beekeeper. We think it's the backyard hobby beekeeper. Interesting. There. They tend to manage their hives in a much more healthy way. So what we do, uh, we've had three classes already here at the Rodale Institute. We're teaching the backyard beekeeper how to be a hive steward. We're not even calling them beekeepers. We're calling them hive stewards. Okay. And it's treatment-free. So absolutely, positively, no chemicals, no antibiotics, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, no treatments at all, and we don't smoke either. Most of the time when you see beekeepers, yes. they use the smoker to be able to work their hive. Right. And what we know is that bees have 170 sense receptors, and mm-hmm. the smoke clogs them up. And I always, when, when, when people question me about smoking bees because that's been the, the norm, I say, okay, here, let me fire my smoker up, and I'm going to stick it in your nose and, and puff away. What would you feel like? Well, it's the same for the bee. It's, it's really no different other than the fact that, you know, we have 30 or 40 um, smell receptors. They have 170. Right. And that's what they are so dependent upon in this uh, searching out nectar. Mm-hmm. And after you smoke a hive, it takes about 10 days of no smoke for their, I won't, for lack of a better word, their lungs right. to clear out. Interesting. But that's been a tradition for probably centuries, right? The smoking of the hives is probably yes. an ancient... No, we, are, we are not using smoke. We use really ice-cold water. And it has the same effect on them. It keeps them very calm. Oh, you mean like a, like a microspray or something? Correct. It's a mister. Interesting. And it, it, it does the job in terms of them, them being calm enough to allow you to get inside the hive and work it and make sure eggs are being laid and so on, uh, but no smoke. So we're not, we're not uh, interrupting their, their eating habits. And the water, they, uh, they, you know, as soon as it dries off, then they're good to go, right? Yes, that's right. And, and they're, they're okay even, even, even when they're wet. It, just, it has a calming effect on them. So mm-hmm. part, part two... As we're training these backyard hobby uh, hive stewards, we're using the Baltimore honey model, and we'd like to begin to have sister cities. So we've talked to people in Philadelphia, for example, where, the, where hives are allowed, mm-hmm. and we're get, beginning to make inroads and, and recreate the same model as what's happened in Baltimore, Maryland. Also... Uh, we've introduced a brand new hive. It's, it's actually going to be April 28th is when we're going to introduce the hive for the first time to the world. It's a hybrid hive that Mimi Thomas from Baltimore Honey has actually designed and, and, and built. Yes, I was reading about that. How, how is that different from the typical traditional hive? Well, there's two really different hives that are, are well known to beekeepers. And one is the Langstroth hive, and that's the one that's a that they're boxes basically with frames inside them. Right. And you stack one upon the other. That's been the one most widely used. And then there's another one called um, a top bar hive, which is a, a Kenyan design. It's an African hive. It's about four feet long. And, and long a long row of frames. Okay. And it is more designed for the bee. It would give the bee a feeling of um, being in the hollow of a tree, for example. Okay. The Langstroth hive is more for the beekeeper. It allows the beekeeper to get in and take the honey. Right. So <laughs> what she's done is combined the best of both of those. So she has a Langstroth hive that sits on top of a top bar hive, and so it allows the beekeeper to move bees around, move brood around, uh, take honey as needed, but it also then is the best for the bees because they feel as though they're living in the hollow of a tree as they inhabit the long or the top bar. 
Okay. Well, Mark, we have to take a little bit of a break. I want to come back and talk more about this. Um, Stay tuned to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Partnerships with our suppliers, and we love to tell their stories. Hot Bread Kitchen is a nonprofit, multi ethnic bakery and job training program out of Manhattan whose range of international breads are as impressive as they are authentic. Learn more at hotbreadkitchen.org or visit one of our six Manhattan locations for a taste. Welcome back to We Do Plants. We're here with Mark Smallwood, Executive Director of the Rodale Institute. They are the organic farming pioneers. So, Mark, we were talking about bees, but I want to leave some time to talk about um, Dr. Elaine Ingham. She's your chief scientist there at the Institute, and she studies the microbial life of the soil and sort of how organic works. And um, can you tell us a little bit about her series of workshops uh, coming up? Sure. Um, I, I do want to tell you also that uh, when I first was hired here a little over a year ago, um, we did not have a Ph.D. on staff, and I called Dr. Elaine Ingham to see if she could make some recommendations, <laughs> and, and, and uh, it, was, it was really kind of fun because she said, what about me? <laughs> that was easy. And, uh, of course, uh, knowing her reputation, um, I flew her out here immediately, and we had a quick interview and, 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 and hired her as our chief scientist. So she is a soil microbiologist. There are lots of soil biologists, but very few microbiologists. So she's put together a series of classes, both spring and fall sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, one is called Life in the Soil, and it's actually a three-day training class. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The classes go from 9 to 5. Uh, the spring session will be April 20th to the 22nd. Is that open to the public? Or it is, is open it... to the public. That's for fantastic. Sure. It's fascinating, too. She's just, uh, uh, of course, highly knowledgeable, but she's a great teacher. I, I, I told her, I, I took the three-day class uh, th- this past year, and I told her that she would make a great lawyer. <laughs> really? She, she makes points. Um, very much like a good lawyer would to, uh, to to the judge. Right. Has a great um, way of bringing you, uh, circling you back to make a point about the microbiology in the soil. October 12th through the 14th will be the other uh, fall class. Mm-hmm. She has a compost course, which is a one-day class on April 23rd, and it's basically how to make compost, and, and I don't mean... Um, not, not um, 
It includes food waste, I, I guess, is what I'm trying okay. to say. Okay, not just garden waste and green waste. Yes. Okay. Garden waste, food waste, and, and really turning it into compost. Right. Uh, so that's April 23rd and October 15th. Compost tea and compost extract, which is, uh, again, another fascinating class. That's April 24th mm-hmm. and October 16th. And then another round of uh, Life in the Soil, um, April 27th and, and October 20th. And that's a microscope, microscope course. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I mean, it's really complicated stuff. And if, you know, you have somebody that can really kind of boil it down, you know, and give you really concrete tips so that you can understand how to do it and understand why you're doing what you're doing when you're composting, you know? Sure. And, and what she'll do, and, and, and I've told people this over and over, um, if, if you want the heavy, detailed microbiology, of course, she has that. Yeah. She, she can also teach, you know, third graders. Wow. She, she, can, she can break it down uh, that way as well. She's just really a great, great instructor. That's a pretty rare skill. <laughs> so the, I, I, I do want to uh, give a little de- detail on the microscope class. Yes, Everybody gets a microscope. Okay. And that, that's the whole entire day is spent identifying the microbiology that lives in soil. So you're looking at uh, multitudes of bacteria, fungi, nematodes. Um, there's a whole list. But what she is able to do is teach you how then to, uh, as a professional, for example, let's say you're a landscaper mm-hmm. or you're a turf specialist, you can take soil samples, take your microscope with you, it's, it's yours to keep, and then begin to identify what life is in your soil. And what we know through her work is that certain plants thrive under bacterial-dominated soil. Mm-hmm. And certain plants thrive under uh, fungal-dominated soil, and, yes. certain, and certain plants thrive when both of them are there in equal amounts, one-to-one. So we're developing a matrix at this point to where uh, we could say to a farmer or, or even a backyard gardener, you know, what do you like to grow? Well, okay, it's vegetables in my raised bed gardens, for example. We are developing the blends of here's how much bacteria to fungi ratio hmm. so that your tomatoes will thrive, but most importantly, or at least as, as importantly, weeds will not. So I've seen photos of her work uh, this past year in Australia, you know, um, a hundred acre field of onions and half of the field was treated and no weeds. The other wow. half of the field was not, and of course it's tough to find the onions because the weeds overtake it. So she, she can develop these blends and ratios of, of, of different kinds of compost, compost teas, and compost extracts to, again, have your crop th- thrive and, and no weeds. So then um, people can create their own compost based on whatever formula they deem best, so think about the labor saving, you know, especially on an organic farm where you have to do a lot more, you know, more time intensive work, weeding and cultivating and everything because you can't spray anything. Right. So this right. is sort of a an, like frontline kind of preventive thing. We think that it is uh, cutting edge work. Yeah. The kind of thing that we want to develop and introduced to uh, the National Organic Standards Board 
let okay. them know that this is a methodology that we, we believe would lessen the time for a farmer to transition from conventional to organic. By using these blends and these ratios, we don't think it takes three years to transition. We think we can do it less in less time. That would be I, amazing. Yeah, so that, that's the work that we're trying to do right now, leading edge, we're calling it. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, uh, e- Elaine is, is driving all of that for us. Well, I hope I can come out in the fall when I'm less busy. I would like to take the class. <laughs> um, I would highly recommend the compost tea and the compost yeah. extract course. That's in April 24th, but also then again in, in October. Yeah, that's what I'm really interested in. Well, I also have to ask you, Mark, about this is another thing that, that caught my attention um, that you're working on. Tree as crop program that that really intrigued me as a concept because i don't think most of us think of commercial wood product production as necessarily being compatible or even associated with farming yet so many small farms historically would maintain and manage a small woodlot to supply their own firewood etc i mean in my own family familial history in italy my family had land that they cultivated for agriculture and they also had woodlots that they would, you know, sort of maintain for their own use. So tell me a little bit about that program. Okay, sure. Uh, you know, the, the um, woodlots you're talking about, and especially in Europe, mm-hmm. um, they have tree stands and woodlots that are, you know, hundreds of years old. Yes. And then as, as a building comes into disrepair, you look at that and you say, now, what are we going to do? How are we ever going to find that wood again? Uh, whatever type of wood it may be, yes. but those people have it on the property, and they say, yeah, <laughs> yes. that's why we've been raising it for 300 years, because now we're going to use it. Yes, yes. And it's, it's basically the same idea. These are, these, uh, tree as a crop is not a woodlot, though. I want to be clear about that. Right, yes. What we do is plant veneer-quality wood. So there are some hardwoods. There's some softwoods as well, but it's all veneer-quality, and we plant them in places that are underutilized or where a, a traditional crop won't grow. Okay. And so it gives the farmer an opportunity to get another cash value out of a crop. Now, so be it, it might be a 15 to 25 year uh, between harvests. Yeah. But farmers still understand that you plant and then you eventually harvest. So. Um, on a hillside where it's difficult to plow, we would yeah. put in tree as a crop. In an area where we can't turn the tractor around, for example, we would put in tree as a crop. So it, so it adds value as, um, one, again, the, the veneer quality wood. It also adds value to their, your property. So if, if the farmer decided that they were going to sell and not farm anymore, they could say to a potential buyer, you know, I have... $250,000 worth of, of veneer quality wood. No, that's on just, my property. that's brilliant. And what kind of species um, are you going to be working with? Um, we have uh, maples, oaks for the most part, no fruits at all. Right. Um, so, so that's all we've planted so far. We have another round uh, this year and we haven't decided yet. We haven't bought any, any new trees. Mm-hmm. But if you could think about the perimeter of our 300-acre farm, mm-hmm. if we covered the perimeter with it, much like a, a hedgerow, yes, 
That's tree as a crop. That's how it works. So I'm, I'm, I'm covering the perimeter, and again, I'm underutilized areas that I can't grow anything. Yeah. And we're, yeah. we're also introducing permanent understory crops underneath the trees, uh, nitrogen fixers. So we're planting permanent clover, for example, oh, I where see. we'll never have to mow it. We won't have to worry about uh, string trimmers around the base of the trees or anything like that. And they right. and, and and they will actually be pulling nitrogen out of the atmosphere and feeding the tree roots. Right. And like you were saying, on hills, it would control erosion. It would hold the soil in place, you yeah. know, rather than Difficult just have... places to plant is where it's the best. Right. Wow. That's you have quite a lot on your plate there, Mark. <laughs> So much going on. Um, I'd like to end um, with maybe some seasonal tips for our listeners on, you know, sort of preparing their gardens organically this spring and not spreading around so much synthetic fertilizer. What what can you say to them that can encourage them and, and help them succeed uh, this season organically in their gardens? Well, what I would tell them is that you should never, ever use any chemicals. There's no reason to. There's an organic answer to... Uh, pest. There's an organic answer to disease. There's an organic answer to uh, fertilizing and, and keeping the soil healthy. And that generally is compost. So that's what we top dress all of our beds where, with. Um, I have a routine of my own where I uh, brew compost tea and I make my own compost extracts and I spray every week. You mm-hmm. can spray the soil with it. You can foliar feed with it, spray it right on the plant, and I do it weekly. You can use the compost tea as you put your seedlings or transplants into your beds. You pour it right in the hole with the uh, root mass. It's the best, and that's all I ever use. I don't put any kind of even organic fertilizer. I don't buy anything. I just make my own compost tea. Yeah, I love compost tea. Well, actually, in our in our ornamental gardens uh, all of our gardens alice and i with groundworks we only use compost every season we we top dress with compost and we do put fertilizers uh organic fertilizers with mycorrhiza and and such um when we plant new gardens but the compost is all we feed with really that's the and that really is all you need and it's fine so I, I have a couple of things that i would think listeners might want to hear sure i i, I coined i coined these two phrases okay <laughs> Oh, probably about 15 years ago. So I like to plant what grows high with what grows low. Okay. And what grows fast with what grows slow. So I'll give you an example. Okay. I take a seed packet of radishes and a seed packet of beets, and I'll mix both packets together, shake them up, and broadcast them in the same row as, as one um, in one pass. So mm. what grows fast the radishes. Yes. What grows slow? The beets. So 30 days from my planting, I am harvesting radishes in 30 days. That's yes. my fast crop. Yes. And as I harvest and pull the radish out of the ground, I'm actually thinning out the beets because the radishes have taken up space in between my beets. Yes. I'm actually thinning that row out as I'm harvesting. So and if you pull out a few beets, you can eat the beet leaves. They're good, too. <laughs> You can you can do that early on yeah. also. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's a uh, fast and slow, okay. high and low. I put um, my tomato plants, for example, 
uh, right in the same bed with, oh, let's say black-seeded Simpson, which is a, a lettuce. Great lettuce, yes. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's my favorite. That's the one my, my grandmother would grow every year, and, uh, and I've carried on the tradition. Yeah, that's so, an heirloom variety, right? It's sure been around is. a long so time. It grows low. By the time it's ready to bolt in the summer, the tomatoes are up. So right. the tomatoes are what grows high, the lettuce is what grows low. And in the meantime, that lettuce is acting as a shade for any uh, weed seeds that might want to germinate. They don't get any sun, so I have a, a living weed barrier that I also will, is edible. Well, that's a great, those are great tips, Mark. I wish we had more time to keep talking. We'll have to have you back again. <laughs> that's all there yeah, is to it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today on We Dig Plants. Please visit the Rodale Institute and be inspired as I was. Um, you can begin by going to their website, www.rodaleinstitute.org. We Dig Plants is produced and engineered by Jack Inslee. A special thanks goes out to our sponsor. Please leave comments and or join our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants. If you miss any part of the show, please note it's available via archive on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and via podcast. See you in the garden. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.